Hey everyone, welcome back to But Why Though the Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the things in pop culture that people say matter and ask the question, but why though? Before we get started, we want to make sure that if you want to support us just a little more, you can head on over to patreon.com slash butwhythoughpc. There we have a variety of things for a dollar a month. You can get access to all of our episodes early as well as our, as well as our research notes for $3. You get special behind the scenes and cutouts and extra episodes. And for our new tier, for $10, you pick the streamable movie, we watch it and review it just for you. So head on over there if you want to help out some more. And for $3, we will also send you buttons and stickers and whatever merch my mind comes up with. Also, go ahead and follow us on Facebook, facebook.com slash PC, Twitter at butwhythoughpc, and interact with us. Enjoy the show. Welcome back, and today we're talking about one of the most prolific directors out right now, Guillermo del Toro. As always, I'm your host, Kate, and I'm here with Adrian. Hey, how's it going? And Matt. Hello. So, just as a disclaimer, I'm probably not going to pronounce a lot of these Spanish words with an accent because it's a lot easier and I don't have to take as many drinks of water. Just going to throw that out there. So, if it's mispronounced, I own it, and I, 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 I let you know that now. Yeah, no, to start things out, the question's going to be two-part. One, do you like Guillermo del Toro? And two, what's your favorite GDT movie? Adrian? Uh, yes. Feels like a very, like, question I would ask someone if I didn't want to talk to them ever again. <laughs> if they said no. Um, I think his best movie is probably Shape of Water, after I've just seen it. But my favorite is Blade Two. Because nice. I'm a huge Blade fan, and Blade, it's my favorite Blade movie of the trilogy. Um, yeah, because it definitely feels very GDT in it, so I'll go with that. Okay. <clears throat> um, I guess the answer would be yes to that question. It's kind of a weird question to ask. <laughs> and um, I guess my favorite... Obviously, I'm going to agree with Adrian for The Shape of the Water. Shape of the Shape of the Water. The Shape of Water is probably his best movie, and... I guess as far as his favorite works, I would probably have to go with... I like Troll Hunter, probably the best out of that one. Nice. Also, I'd like to put a public service announcement for all our Oregon viewers. How come you guys do not know how to pump gas? Oh my gosh, Matt. <laughs> I just feel like they should contact us and let us know this. Can we get a GDT movie about Oregon struggling pumping gas? Yes. <laughs> and a giant gas monster comes up? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so for me... I agree with both of you guys that The Shape of Water is his best movie. Um, We'll talk about that as we go on at the show. And for me, my favorite is actually going to be uh, Pan's Labyrinth, followed very closely by Crimson Peak, which are two completely different movies. But it's awesome. And I think for most people, Pan's Labyrinth was when he... I mean, he had already won awards and stuff, and then when Pan's Labyrinth came out, he... That's when he got to, like, the American Oscars. So, anyway. So, I I don't know how to, like, fancily transition this because I don't know if there's, like, a proper fan term for loving Guillermo del Toro. Um, but I will be that proper fan term as I lead us through this episode. Uh, so, Guillermo del Toro was born on October 9th in 1964, and he's a Mexican film director, screenwriter, producer, novelist, special effects artist special effects studio owner like he pretty much does it all and in his filmmaking career uh he's been able to alternate between both spanish language dark fantasy pieces and even mainstream american action movies um he was um he was born in um, guadalajara jalisco in mexico and he was raised as a very very strict catholic fun fact his mother tried to exercise him at one point Um, And he laughed at her, which then she took as him laughing at the holy water, and things got really weird, which explains him now. (laughs) He has studied every, everything that he does, he puts an immense amount of study into, so he studied special effects um, making with Dick Smith, and in Guadalajara he studied script writing. 
Um, and then he also studied filmmaking. So his entire life, he's kind of go gone through the different stages to get to this point where we know him as a prolific director. Uh, he spent 10 years as a special effects makeup artist and designer. And then he decided to form his own com company, um, Necropica. And after that, he also founded the Guadalajara International Film Festival. And in his directing career, he actually formed his own production company called the Tequila Gang. So he was one of those types where it was literally, okay, I did this for a little while. Now I'm going to make my own rules and create my own companies to do these things. I felt like I was a part of the Tequila Gang, but I didn't know that was a production company. You get an honorary Tequila Gang membership? I need one. So his first movie was Kronos, and this was a film that won over 20 awards, but when it came to the Mexican Film Institute, they refused to fund the movie, and then they refused to fund any promotion of the movie, so whenever he talks about it, he always jokingly says that he turned to his wife and was like, for, Cannes, for the Cannes Film Festival, do I bring 14 posters or 15? And so he brought 15 posters and a roll of scotch tape to probably one of the most important international stages to debut a movie because Mexico said, this is a genre film, this is horror, we're not going to put money into this and highlight it. And later on, that became it became a Criterion classic, and Criterion classics are movies that the Film Institute is deemed as just that, classics. Like, these are the movies you watch to understand what filmmaking is. After that, in 1997... He was given a $30 million budget for Miramax to shoot another film, Mimic, which he pretty much says is the worst film he's ever directed because it's where he made the most of his compromises. What he did was he gave pretty much all the power to, the direct, to everybody else and in order for him to keep control of the visuals of the movie. So that movie is very visually him, but script-wise it's not. The movie's also very bad. It's a very bad movie, yes. He acknowledges this. <laughs> um, and he says a lot of it has to do with not having control of everything else. And if he had done it differently, he would have tried to fight to keep control of everything. Um, but he was it was his first American film. And on top of that, he was also dealing with a really difficult time because once it was printed in the Mexican newspapers that he had received this big budget from um, Miramax Films, his father was actually kidnapped in Guadalajara. Um, and it was a million dollar ransom. And it was actually James Cameron, who was a friend of his, who gave him the money to find his father and to rescue him. And from this point on, this led Del Toro to move his entire family out of Mexico and himself. And he always talks about how he always feels like he's reminded that he's in voluntary exile from his family because he doesn't feel like anybody's safe to live there because um, he's targeted and because he is probably the biggest thing to come out of Mexico in a very, very long time film-wise, and so he's known everywhere. The surprising thing is that even though his father was the one who got kidnapped, his father is the one who chose to actually stay in Mexico once he moved his entire family. Um, but... This is one of the things that really forms um, GDT and how he makes his movies and how he puts his folklore and his life into them because he does feel disconnected from the country because he can't go back. Um, and when I say go back, I mostly mean like live and build a life in his home, in, you know, in his hometown. He can't go back. Uh, he is also a writer. And in 2009, he published his first novel called *The Strain*, and this spawned two other um, two other novel two other novels, *The Fall* and *The Night Eternal*. And the this trilogy is what the TV show on FX, *The Strain*, is based on. And if you haven't seen it, it is a phenomenal show. And in all honesty, it's probably my favorite take on a vampire. And I really love Buffy. So, like, this blows that out of the water. I have not actually watched that. Oh. <clears throat> I've, seen like, I've seen, like, three episodes. This shit's scary. It is. <laughs> it's terrifying. Yeah. I, I can't watch it. It's scary. <laughs> yeah, it's terrifying, and it's well-written, and you can tell from the very first moment that the, that the vampires 
are influenced by him. And not only that, in the in the show, he works in his his Mexican heritage by having one of the Mexican American characters team up with a former uh, luchador actor, kind of modeled after um, uh, of luchador films that at one point had influenced DDT. I wanted to watch The Strain because I thought it was going to be like a virus type movie. And then I found out it was like vampires and then I really didn't care. Yeah, I mean, so the reason that it's weird and it's it's a vampire based thing, but it is actually having to do with a virus. So it's not the traditional like we live forever vampires. Like it is very much treated like a virus and very much grounded in science. And one of the main things that he did in his novel, which he's translated into the show, is to show the importance of research and backing research and stuff like that. And that's one of the things that he's spoken about. And that that's honestly why I like it, because it does vampires in a way that has never been done before. And they just look cool because their faces like come apart. Um, so in 2010, um, Del Toro launched uh, Mirada Studios, which with his longtime cinematographer, um, Guillermo Navarro. So if you ever look at his directing credits, you'll often see him as a cinematographer on them. And uh, he also had uh, director Matthew Cullen and executive producer Javier Jimenez. And Mira Mirada was formed in Los Angeles, California to be a collaborative space where they and other filmmakers can work with Mirada's artists to create and produce projects that span digital production and content in film, television, advertising, interactive, and other media. Marada launched as a sister company to the company Motion Theory. And this was one way to kind of have all these people working together as one hub and sharing resources. So I also wanted to make sure, and I probably should have said this at the beginning, but do not confuse him with Benicio del Toro or Guillermo del Toro, because both of those things have been done when people talk about him. Most recently, a reviewer who had a negative review of Shape of Water credited Benicio del Toro with the writing and directing of that movie. <laughs> uh, so they're not all the same. Um, in total... Uh, GDT has 21 directing credits, starting with Kronos, Mimic, The Devil's Backbone, Blade 2, Hellboy 1 and 2, Pan's Labyrinth, Pacific Rim, which is his most unmodest film, and it's also his most expensive, Crimson Peak, and The Shape of Water. Out of all of these, Pacific Rim is the only one that had over a $100 million budget. The rest were all pretty low, with his, his lowest budgeted movie actually being The Shape of Water at $19 million. It's also the movie that are probably... Even though I haven't seen Crimson Peak, A Devil's Backbone, that I would at least want to watch out of all the movies I've seen. So in television, he actually got his start on a Mexican TV show called um, Ora, um, Ora Marcada. And this was a Mexican horror mystery show, kind of like American Horror Story. Like they were little anthology stories that were told. Um, then he has The Strain, Troll Hunters, and he directed an episode of Treehouse of Horror for The Simpsons. Uh, novels, he has the Strain series, and he has Troll Hunters. And initially, when he came to um, DreamWorks with the idea for Troll Hunters, they told him that they just they couldn't do it at the time because of how much it was going to take. And so he said, "Okay, I'm just going to go write a book about this." <laughs> and then they came back to it and partnered with Netflix to do two seasons now, and it'll be wrapping up um, this year with its third season. It's really good. If you haven't seen it, you should go see it. Even if you don't like animation, it's it, it's good enough that I think it's good enough for adults and kids to watch. It's it's pretty dope. Because I think out of all of it, like I think all of us love fantasy. Like I guess, like what do you all think about like his take on I guess like fantasy writing there? Because it's a very different type of fantasy than we see him play with in other things. Because it's for kids. Is it for kids? That's a very good question. I mean, I think it's definitely generated, like, for kids. Because a lot of, like, the stuff is very, um, you can tell, like, they're trying to do it for kids. But he's trying to do, like, death and things like that in a way that would be okay for a kid to see it. You yeah. know, like, nothing is like, wow, I don't want my, I, I can't f see anyone being like, oh, I don't want my kid watching this, yeah. this. Unless they're, like, that Mexican grandma who's like, oh, you know, all these trolls of the devil kind of thing. <laughs> Yeah, no. but I think it's good. It, the, the characters in it are diverse, which is great. Um, Anton Yelchin was amazing in it. I don't know what they're going to do after this without you know him in there because I think his voice is very distinct. Um, 
yeah, it's just a good show. It's solid. Like, it's solid GDT. Yeah, no, like you said, I, I know it is for kids, but it's definitely some show that, like I said, I think you can watch as an adult and you still enjoy it, especially with some of the concepts, even though he makes them to where a kid can watch it, but they're still kind of like, I think Kate's cried watching this show. I, uh, you think, remember you watched an episode ahead of I did and then you stood there when you knew the certain part was going to happen with a certain thing and then I just cried. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> um... And this is probably the first time because it is is a show that's on Netflix and not on something like FX. It's probably one of his first things that's really like there's a lot of access to it. And you get to see how he's able to build lore over multiple episodes and not just one movie. Um, also, the troll market in Troll Hunters, I'm like 100% sure is the troll market in Hellboy 2. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> just want to put that out there, which... I watched Hellboy 2 recently, and I don't know why everybody hates it. I think it's still a really pretty movie with good fight scenes. So I'm yeah, I like <laughs> Hellboy 2 better than Hellboy 1, I think. I think they definitely tried to get more action in Hellboy 2 over Hellboy 1. Yeah. I like him and Liz's story, which is pretty like, iconic GDT. Like He wants to give the monster, and I'm using quotes here, and you'll find out why later. He wants to give the monster... Um, a humanizing quality and love. Yeah, yeah. I think the themes in Hellboy Two are just better. I think because yeah. in Hellboy One, it's just more of like him and Liz. But like in Hellboy Two, you get him and Liz, you get Sapien and the elf chick, you get his decision to you know blow uh, blow away the elemental. Like there's some some heavy themes in there that heavy. I think you don't get in Hellboy One. That is very accurate. Um, so. In addition to these things, he is also a producer, and he has 42 producing credits. The most notable, as well as the ones you'll probably hear about, are The Orphanage, Julia's Eyes, Beautiful, um, and that one's with Javier Bardem, uh, Kung Fu Panda 2, Puss in Boots, Mega Mind, Mama, Pacific Rim Uprising, which I was really sad when I found out he wasn't directing it, uh, and The Book of Life. And he has essentially turned into the person because the executive producer is in charge of coming up with about 25% of the production budget, Guillermo del Toro is the only reason the Book of Life got made um, once he attached himself to the project because it gave it that weight it needed to get picked up by a studio, um, which I'm happy because it's a beautiful movie. Um, so he's turned into like a James Cameron or like a Steven Spielberg where if you put his name, he, he, he gets projects off the ground. Um, he's also really, he's pretty much risen through everything and now... When we get into the but why those, I want to just kind of surface here that I'm not going to talk about the money he's made with his films because when I was doing research and I was listening to him talk, that never comes up. He doesn't care how much he grosses and he doesn't care about what he does with it. Like his main thing is producing producing movies and producing art and telling stories um so i just kind of want to honor that by not bringing up those numbers um but i will say that um shape of water is looking to like it might get a whole bunch of oscars i'm hoping for everything that it's been given there's positive reactions to it that it's going to win out in all its categories um so i'm rooting for you gdt i'm rooting for you very very much because i love you you're not going to say how much that movie was made off of uh, did earlier. It was um, 19, 19 million. Oh, I didn't know you said that. <clears throat> oh, yeah, yeah. No, that's why I said I know how much it is. I'm talking about did you say this on here? Oh, yeah. Oh, I thought okay. I did at the beginning. Yeah. Because I said that the majority of his movies were made on a small budget. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, so the first but why, though, is the fact that in Guillermo del Toro's films, he brings back this folklore and myth that is kind of missing from a lot of these big these big horror movies because he very happily sits in the horror category that's where he places himself and that's where he wants to live and that's where he was inspired as a child but what is missing in a lot of the movies that you watch is they focus on jump scares they don't always focus on building out a, wor a, a world so in del toro's work it's characterized by a strong connection to fairy tales and horror but all in a way to bring this visual and poetic beauty. So Del Toro is known for his use of insectile and religious imagery. And 
this is showcased by bringing in a whole bunch of his background and highlighting uh, Catholicism, um, themes from Catholicism and imperfection, the underworld, clocks. Um, he uses a lot of special special effects and he gets a whole bunch of inspiration and uh, for his myths from the actors that he's working with, which is why he uses a bunch of the same actors over and over again, mainly Ron Perlman and Doug Jones. Um, specifically Doug Jones, he said that he works with him because Doug Jones is an actor and you need an actor behind all the, all the creatures. Um, Doug Jones has been in six of his movies and played six creatures and each of them in a very unique way which I think Doug Jones is the Andy Serkis of practical effects, in all honesty. Um, so he's also heavily influenced by Mexican folk folklore. Um, he makes it not only a showpiece in retelling these things, but more so in what it takes to understand them. He puts things forward as objects and how it's this blending of Catholicism and, indige and indigenous um, identities and that's what he does specifically and what he wanted to do in Book of Life he wanted to make he, he helped Jorge map out this way of marriaging this idea of Day of the Dead that came from indigenous culture all the way to how it happened with Catholicism which is why you have um, La Muerte and Chibalba in the movie um, to, to showcase that he's also really really inspired of bringing out these gothic tales and fairy tales from Victorian England so stuff like Jane Eyre Wuthering Heights that made me really happy because some of his favorite books are my favorite books and overall he sees a lot of what he makes as fairy tales for the time that he's making these movies so everything that he makes is very situated to the year that it comes out um, his newest film that we've talked about a little bit, Shape of Water, he sees as a much-needed fairy tale for troubled times and as a way for people to see and accept the other and the difference and see that you can love it. Um, he also has folklore, he brings folklore to life in the way he directs and writes his movies and focusing on objects. So when you think about... Um, uh, if you think about a tale or a fairy tale or any sort of like folklore, it's always tied to something. It's tied to an object. It's explaining why an iris looks like this. It's explaining um, it's explaining a spider. It's a, it's explaining a river. And so what he does is when he builds out these stories, every single person is create is connected to an object in that world. Um, and everything is placed for a reason. And because there's an importance placed on objects, you're able to see these stories unfold with them. And the most iconic one you can think of, I guess, for everybody on here, because we've all seen Hellboy, and I want to use something that we've all seen, is the fact that Hellboy um, carries his horns as a reminder of where he comes from, and he also carries the rosary on his hand. And that shows that he is actively choosing to reject to reject the horns and choose that. So it, it brings this idea of making a choice and he solidifies it visually and shows you instead of using a character on the outside explaining it. And that's another main mark. Um, he doesn't, it, it's funny listening to him talk because he talks about him not wanting to answer questions that are Anglo-Saxon logic. And then he corrects himself and says, I mean, contemporary Anglo-Saxon logic, because there was a time where these where these tales were understood just from seeing it. And he taught he says that everybody asks, asks him, well, what does this mean? What does that mean? Why didn't you have a character in there telling us what that was? And he said, why do I need to have a character telling you? And he brings, um, the one that he goes back to a lot is the pale man in Pan's Labyrinth, the guy with the creepy ass eyes. And he says that there's a pile of shoe, there's a pile of children's shoes. The doorways are mouths. There's murals all around the wall. I didn't need to include a line in the story that said, this is an ogre that eats kids. I showed it to you. It's there. Watch it. That is, that is all the logic you need to bring into my movie. You need to watch it. Um, which I think is really refreshing, especially for the type of movies that we're getting now. Yeah, I like it. Uh, I think one of the fa my favorite things about the way he tells the stories is that 
he doesn't hit you over the head with like his world building. Like he shows you some scenes. You have to be smart enough, not smart enough. That that's like that sounds negative, but you have to like be paying attention enough and like use your own imagination enough to like think about the world that's going on here. I think that's why Pan's Labyrinth is so good. That's why Hellboy is so good. Uh, you know, that's why Blade Two is so good. Like they don't need you to know about all this other stuff. Like you just hear this. Here's this organization. Fill in the background and deal with the story that I'm giving you. That's also going to kind of fill in the blanks for you as we go through the story. Yeah, and I think too, like one of the things in Crimson Peak that he does is there's like all these ghosts. And there's never a character that says, oh, yeah, that's the ghost of so-and-so that died. The movie tells you. <laughs> like, just like you're saying, it just unfolds in front of you and you just have to watch it. Was that, what do you think, Matt? Because I know, like, on, like, on your review episode, like, you brought up, like, all a lot of the movies that we're getting now needing us to go outside the movie to learn stuff. <laughs> <clears throat> well, I was kind of going to say what Adrian ended up saying, so I didn't... <laughs> it was basically the story itself just kind of unfolds and you don't need all this extra, like, DLC or go read all this extra stuff. And it's not really, like, necessarily linear, per se, but you definitely a simpler, like, just shut up and watch as adrian said and you don't need anything else per se but you do have to pay attention yeah which is what is nice yeah he's definitely somebody who's known for his visual style and his visual storytelling um i say the music for the most part i know shape of water i talked about the store was very bad i think pan's labyrinth has a lot of cool if i remember correctly i haven't seen that movie in 10 years you said the score is really bad? The score. The score is really good? Yes. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I was saying, I'm pretty sure in Pan's Labyrinth, the score has a lot of, like, nice moments as well that yes. fits in that, uh, throughout that movie. Yeah, he tends to, like, with the music at least, it, it's really, it's jarring when it needs to be, and it sets the scene. Like, so in Crimson Peak, it's completely his telling of a gothic romance and a gothic, like, story, and that score, like, immerses you in it. Right. And it changes with everything. Um, so the next one is, of course, going to be representation. And half of it has to do with the fact that he is he has become a very large figure within the Latinx community to show, hey, we, we're doing good work, too. Um, but the other one is that he kind of has an approach to telling these fairy tales in the, if you remember, I believe it was episode eight in our Miyazaki episode, where he talked about how he represented people. Um, Guillermo del Toro has said, it's important for little girls to know not every story has to be a love story and for boys to know that soldiers aren't the only ones to triumph in war. And so for him, whenever he creates a character, he makes sure that... And this goes back to the folklore and the fairy tales so that somebody is learning something from that character on how to behave and what to do. And he tries to make sure that there are ample, um, I guess, like pathways to come at it. So like if you watch one character, they may reinforce this this regular idea. And then if you watch another character, you'll have another one subvert, uh, subvert those norms and push you in the other direction. Um, so he likes to balance things out that way. And one of the most important things that I think for understanding Guillermo del Toro is as much as we we love him as this example of Mexican art and Mexican vision and as a Mexican filmmaker, for him, that doesn't mean anything because Mexico and most of Latin America as countries do not fund his work they pretty much exile him for being a genre filmmaker. They want social genres. And he says it the best, so I kind of don't want to paraphrase, but he says, I believe in roots. I don't believe in geography. Geography is bullshit. Someone invented to keep us apart. Governments control us by geography. When you're born in the world from a satellite, Mexico and America look the same. When people say, what's Mexican about your movies? I say me. It's just a special brand of madness that makes us make alabrijes that's more important than having a nationalistic value to me. The one thing we need to reclaim as storytellers is to have no shame. When I went to America, they kept giving me mariachi, drug dealer stories. You wouldn't give that to Cronenberg. 
my his, my Hispanic roots, my Mexican roots come with me all the time. The main thing for me is when I was a kid, I wanted to make movies with monsters, and I've never betrayed that. The important thing to me as a Hispanic is to exist as an example of a very... <laughs> I apologize for the cussing, to exist as an example of a very deranged fat fucker and for other crazy future filmmakers in Latin America to dream about fables, fairy tales, and not to be tied down. So for him, at least listening to what he says in this quote and what he says in a lot of his interviews is he's Mexican about his films. He brings us to it, but do not box him in to just doing these stories. He doesn't want to do the social drama about the cartel he wants to talk about monsters and fables and i think that just i just kind of want to leave that there because i kind of don't know what to say i think it's a very different take than what we see a lot of when we talk about representation and especially when you see directors and it's not that he's i don't want it to sound like he doesn't claim himself as a mexican director because he does he sees everything as he everything that he writes and does is very intrinsic to his upbringing in Mexico. But at the same time, he's not Robert Rodriguez. He's not going to keep making mariachi movies, which may have to do with being Mexican from Mexico and not Mexican-American like Robert, like somebody like a Robert Rodriguez is. Um, there's a different understanding there. Well, I mean, as you said, his, he dealt his entire country and he's exiled. Yeah. And then you come here and you have somebody trying to push you into exactly what your country was pushing you into that you didn't want to do, so why would you do it here? Correct. <laughs> if I didn't do it for my own country, why would I do it for you? Exactly. What do you think, Adrian? Um, I can't really, you know, like you said, I don't want to say anything. You can't really say it better than he says it, so I'll just, I'll be like you and I'll just leave it there. I like it a lot. So this is going to be the giant chunk of the episode, I believe, is talking about horror and how he situates himself within it. Because when he talks about horror and monsters, he talks about it from like a very religious experience, something that is built inside him and not so much something that he's just a part of. It's very much a part of him. Um, and a lot of this starts from hearing Mexicans, like Mexican folktales and like the really weird stuff that like Mexican grandmas tell their kids. About anybody, the scary things. Anybody listen to our Halloween episode, Kate can confirm her family just tried to terrorize her and give her nightmares. It was our scream episode. But Whatever yes. one. Yes. <laughs> so like La Llorona and then he talked and but he specifically talks about this one tale called like the Seven Monks, and he was talking about how there was head smashing and stuff in that, and he's a little kid hearing these really gory stories. Um and so that definitely affected him. But one of the other um and but there are other things that affected him too and one of the main ones is hammer horror um and for those of you who don't know hammer horror is a very specific genre within within horror films and it came around in the 1930s and this was the very first technic like bright ass technicolor movies of frankenstein dracula the mummy all you know all the classic monsters only they were brought to life and this stark um, the, these bright images are one of the things that if you think about Guillermo del Toro, you know about his use of color. It's something that he always makes sure is consistent or striking and everything is there for a piece. And a lot of this is influenced from hammer horror. But probably out of everything in the horror world, the one thing that has really built Guillermo del Toro into who he is is monsters. I think the... The most interesting thing out of all this is out of all the movies we pretty much talked about and we're talking about horror right now, it's it's hard for me to say that these are horror movies, but obviously I know from the classification apparently they are. Yeah. But I just don't, it's just weird that this is classified all under horror to me. Yeah, it really is, and it was something that I didn't expect to hear him talk about because he himself sees it as being situated as horror too. Um, but I think the reason that that's there is because in every movie that he does, there's a creature. So and is the use of monsters then more defining it into the horror genre yes. versus actually being a horror movie, I guess? Yes. So there are, uh, and if you, um, in, in, our, in our horror episode, I kind of go through a whole bunch of the subgenres. Um, but horror can be done in many different ways, and it's 
particularly the use of monsters and his inspiration from universal horror um, that leads him to place himself this way and also leads us to categorize a lot of his stuff as horror as well. And the other thing that comes into play with that is also the use of graphic violence because if you've watched a Guillermo del Toro movie, like you, they're pretty explicit with what you see. Um, uh, he's pretty explicit with what you see. Um, in Pan's Labyrinth, you have that guy's skull that gets crushed in, and you see every bit of it. Um, you also have his love of mouth wounds, which I hate. And if you are by some chance listening to this Guillermo, Please stop putting mouth wounds in things. It really bothers me. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that, that's kind of where it situates it. So they're kind of like creature feature type things. Um, yeah, it's kind of just like you have to understand that horror isn't always just the jump scares and the ghosts and that type of stuff. I think it's just disrespectful to monsters and creatures itself to be placed there. Which he talks about, actually. Um, so... He has had a lifelong fascination with monsters, and he doesn't consider monsters as these evil creatures. He sees them as these symbols of great power. And this is one of the reasons that he filled his house with um, props from his own movies, as well as props from other movies. So I'm talking full-on, like, silicone statues of Frankenstein and Edgar Allan Poe, and he has a Linda Blair from The Exorcist statue that sits on the couch with him and watches TV. Um, and he has built his house as an interconnection of like 13 rooms and different libraries. And so it's, he's when he talks about it, he's talking about when you come into his house, you're coming into his brain. And that's how his brain works. And everything is done for his own research and his own inspiration. So this led to him partnering with different a different um with different museums like LACMA in LA, in, in LA to do an exhibit called At Home with Monsters, um, specifically the Bleak House, which he donated, he donated part of his collection to be used for a period of time it, to complement existing collections. And when he talks about it, he says that having these statues removed from his house feels like an amputation, like they're friends to him and they're a piece of him. And he built these ideas from a child. Like, essentially, the house he lives in now is the, is the house that he built as a child with secret passages, a water room to write. And ultimately, what it comes down to is that he treats every monster in his room as a piece of his childhood and as a friend from his childhood and as a different token of his, like, of his creative mind pretty much um he imbues them with this type of power that he sees and they he says that when he writes seeing a bust of of frankenstein's monster or you know seeing these different pieces it reminds him of his humanity and the humanity that he wants to bring out in what he writes um so he pretty much just immerses himself um and at the end of the day he says that he wants his stuff back and the only country that he wants to take it to other than the u.s because he's had people um, i believe japan asked to have it shown there as well um there are a lot of people interested in having this thing but at the end of the day like there's a very personal connection to him and the only place he would think about going is mexico um where he could highlight mexican artists and stuff like that but beyond that he he wants his stuff back <laughs> um so his fascination with monsters has I've kind of given you the end point of him living with them. Well, he was li- he's been living with them for a long time, and he actually learned to speak English because he was reading a magazine called Famous Monsters of Filmland. And in there, you had different character breakdowns of all the universal horror monsters and how they were made, the directors in the movies, how that monster felt. Um, and he would read it, and that's how he, that's how he learned English. So by age six, after he had learned to read English, he started taking out um, books like Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, and he sees this as something that has really shaped him, a lot of the reading that he immersed himself in. And my favorite thing about how he talks about monsters is he talks about them in a very Catholic way. He talks about monsters like they're gods or saints, and he talks about how they're fragile 
and they represent martyrs and they also represent uh, suffering and for him as a child when he saw these monsters they weren't something to be afraid of they were something that he saw himself in it was something that was misunderstood and it was something that was always put on the outside but had more underneath it so when he presents a creature or a monster back to what you said about like is this insulting to the monsters for him when he presents them he doesn't present them as something horrifying all the time he presents them as something intriguing and multifaceted um they're never just scary there are always different levels to them and probably the one that he's talked about being most most inspired by is the gill man or um the creature from the black lagoon and this is what has heavily influenced shape of water which he calls his it's a summary of his work and something different as well um so in catholicism there's this idea of original sin and that you're automatically damaged from the start and no matter what you do you have to seek forgiveness and for him that value wasn't important for humans it was important for the monsters that he saw so he took that those catholic teachings that he got as a kid and saw them saw that in the monsters and he saw the the monsters as being even more human than we were and he ended up coming with a, this idea that the monsters don't have to be changed and they don't want to be changed the monsters need to be accepted as they are and he explains when he talks in interviews that the people who scare him the most are the people who are the most certain and he sees monsters as living outside of the people who say that there is only one way of living which he makes analogous to racism hatred bigotry and that monsters themselves represent this need for us to accept um, and the monsters and creatures only want us to understand them them and they want to understand themselves in this world that's against them because as you said, like, I guess just looking at a lot of the monsters between, like I said, the asset of Shape of Water and Pan's Labyrinth, and even some of the characters he has in Hellboy, they look super creepy, super obviously original, unique, and out of this world, right? I believe we watched Hellboy 2, where the person who resurrects uh, Hellboy literally has all his eyes on his wings and no face. But... <clears throat> And it looked totally terrifying, but yet that character does nothing but actually help them. Yep. So there was, like, no point of, like, they weren't trying to scare you. He wasn't trying to scare you or anything else. It was just, this is what I happen to look like. Yeah. This is here. <laughs> yep. Same thing in, uh, you know, Blade 2. You know, the son, okay. you know, isn't trying to be, ex or he's not, like, you know. Yeah, it's the same thing, right? Like, the son just wants to be accepted by his dad he doesn't want to like be pushed out for being you know the monster among monsters you know so i think you get that you get that sense even in you know uh action thriller you know like blade 2 that i never thought would have like you know this big undertones in it yeah so and i think like just kind of thinking back to like this this idea of monsters i think the only movie where he presents monsters as monsters like as we traditionally know them is going to be the kaiju in um in pacific rim and even then he has moments in pacific rim where he's trying to make sure that you understand why the kaiju are there um and who the kaiju are so yeah <laughs> um i also want to say too um what he does in a way like i've said isn't really horror because he explicitly says that he doesn't want the scares from horror he wants the imagery and he wants the stories and he wants the atmosphere and his goal isn't to scare you it's to borrow all of these things and build a world and invite you in and tell you this story um that being said there are a lot of his movies that are pretty jarring um, like the devil's backbone is a ghost story but it's a ghost story set in an orphanage it's a tale of brothers it, it's more than just a ghost story so when you look at his stuff even when you look at it through a traditional horror lens for some of his movies that seem more traditionally horror the focus isn't on the horrifying aspects it's on everything around it and how they work piece by piece and he also says that in his films horror exists as an element but not as a whole 
for him it's more so a love of, of the fantastic and the dark and about the locations it's about the houses it's about the like the holes it's about that um he's been asked if he thought that horror was a stepping stone because when it comes to filmmaking and i think we've talked about it on the podcast before genre films don't really get you anything a lot of the time they don't get you awards they usually don't get you big box offices they're usually snubbed for almost everything and f- so when you come into horror usually you have somebody who's doing a horror movie as their first movie or you know their second movie and then they go into a big a big uh, big blockbuster and they never make horror again and this works for actors and directors and you know but for him when he talks about it he specifically said that horror is a cathedral it's something that he lives in and he learns from and he pretty much worships at and it's really for me as a religious studies scholar hearing him talk about this type of reverence for the genre and for the creatures that he creates really makes me want to go rewatch his entire catalog of movies and kind of look at it through that lens which I've never done before um so he wants to stay in horror he wants to stay there and he wants monsters like I, I know I don't have a lot about why those here but I think to understand Guillermo del Toro is to understand his love of monsters and not only that his love of humanizing them he, the biggest but why though for him is he wants you to walk away from from his movies understanding the differences in the things around you and really watching them and that's why he's been able to really change cinema because when he came on the when he came on the scene there was this big move away from doing practical effects from doing people in suits because nobody thought that it could have that real quality because hey we we have cgi now and cgi will make it real um and that's not how it is for him for him he thinks about boris karloff playing frankenstein's monster and he knows that that movie he views that movie as being half the director and half karloff and for him that's why he uses doug jones and actors in suits versus cgi because there's a there and if you listen to octavia spencer talk about her like working on shape of water and she plays zelda in shape of water she says that working with doug jones that acting and that emotion that you get from her and Sally Hawkins is something you wouldn't be able to get by just having somebody with dots on their face because there is a live fish man in front of you. Which is amazing how well he plays that part considering he obviously does not speak the entire movie. Yeah. And he actually specifically like told him too because it is so similar it is so similar to Abe Sapien his the character in um in Hellboy that he wanted Doug Jones to play the asset, and he's not even named, the asset is something as an animal versus Abe Sapien, who was a human who was a fish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I really don't know what to say, because I think you just put everything so well. Um, I Yeah, so like Matt was saying, I've never thought of Guillermo del Toro movies as horror, because one, if it was horror... I get scared. <laughs> and two, nothing ever like scares me just because I'm so immersed in the storytelling, the world building, the characters in it, his portrayal of, you know, the monster in it. It's all just been really like, like man, this is great storytelling. Am I even watching a monster movie? You yeah. know what I mean? Um, yeah. Yeah, he's great. Come back and make more movies. <laughs> What were you going to have about Mary Shelley Frankenstein? What do you mean? It's in the notes. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. That's a thing I would love for him to tackle. Yeah, so that... Uh, Frankenstein? So they... That would be amazing, because we haven't gotten anything good Frankenstein. Like, that Frankenstein movie, right? I, Frankenstein movie, was god Oh, my gosh, that is one of the worst <laughs> movies I've ever seen. He's talked about that. He said that if he could direct a movie, it would be Miller's Frankenstein. He would redo it, or he would do the Road Warrior, which is like the weirdest pick. And he even because he was doing a roundtable with other directors, like, "Oh, we'll let you go first, Guillermo. You're, you know, you're the cinephile here." And he was like, "I want to do the Road Warrior. 
And then they're like, but what about Frankenstein? He's like, well, of course, Frankenstein. You know, it was the first novel that he read. And the fact that, so Mary Shelley was 19 when he wrote, when she wrote Frankenstein. And so there's a lot of that teen angst that goes into that character and that exploration of it. And so this idea in if you if you've read frankenstein and if you've watched frankenstein and within the horror community there's this beautiful love of it because you realize that that novel is written not to show frankenstein as as uh, to show frankenstein's monster as a human and even more human than frankenstein than dr frankenstein himself because dr frankenstein is somebody who's trying to play god and he is the one with the devious means whereas frankenstein's monster he just wants his soul. He wants to become real and realized and human. And so when he read that, and that was the first novel he read, that is, like, you can, and I'm saying it, and I'm, like, I'm hoping you all can hear it, like, that is very much how he builds out his monsters now. Um, yeah. Yeah, like, what, what monster to humanize more than, like, the monster of monsters, you yeah. know? Like, that's, that's, that story is right up his alley to do, and I'm actually super surprised that he hasn't done it yet. Like now, the more that I think about it, the more I hope he does that. So come back to us and give us that movie that we all want. Because if you're listening now, um, he has taken a sabbatical. <laughs> Shape of Water took a lot out of him, and he sees, like I said earlier, he sees it as a culmination of 25 years of work. Um, it's the movie that if you watch it, it's like. Written by Guillermo del Toro, directed by Guillermo del Toro, produced by Guillermo del Toro. And he actually has a a hand in the special effects of all his stuff. And that's why they come out so perfect and unique. And with that special touch is because he actually knows how to mold those masks and mold those bodysuits. And he has a very big hand in them. Um, And so, yeah, he's kind of like, I'm going to drop the mic with Shape of Water leave you for a little bit and i completely agree with you adrian he should just come in like guns ablazing with frankenstein or just anything <laughs> like what i would also really like would like for him to do um is i think he might be the one to bring superhero or uh, uh video game movies like back to the forefront oh, I, I, yeah. I, I say that like like laura croft tomb raider looks really really good like i think that one's gonna be super good but, also but th- if he did if he did like a Bioshock movie, I think he would absolutely murder that and give us a great story in that kind of like universe. I just think also as much as I think that'd be great, but yeah, Tomb Raider, I feel like out of, out of a lot of video games, it's probably one of the easiest ones. I don't see why it could not be successful. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's literally almost like an Indiana Jones type movie, except it was a, obviously a popular video game. To go back to Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, by the way. Did anybody ever watch the show, I believe, that was on Adult Swim called Mary Shelley's Frankenstein? Mm-mm. Which basically actually depicts kind of like, which has this whole, it's obviously a comedy and kind of messed up, but it shows basically Dr. Frankenstein with Mary Shelley um, and basically in this whole land of like Frankenstein vampires and all this stuff. And it's like a comedy little good thing. I don't know how many seasons there was of it. But is something worth checking out? I want to know if Guillermo del Toro has watched that. <laughs> I don't know. It's it's actually quite hilarious. <laughs> um, now that I'm thinking about it, Adrian, I don't want anybody to bring Rapture to life but him. Right? Like he could do it. He could do it so well. Like think about all of the, you know, the creepy characters in, uh, you know, in Bioshock that really aren't monsters they're just people oh the more i think about it the more i want it can you imagine guillermo del toro's version of a big daddy and a little sister oh it'd be so good it would so it'd be so good um yeah so i guess for some quick fun facts about guillermo del toro um he was originally chosen by peter jackson to direct the hobbit film series Um, But he ended up leaving the project because of production problems and instead decided to write all three films. So he's a writer on all those films. I didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't either. He also has a whole bunch of writing credits. I don't know why I didn't include them, but he has a whole... I think that's why I didn't include them. There's a whole bunch of writing credits. Um, The majority... Oh, no, I actually think I said all these fun facts while I was talking. 
Another fun fact, when Blade first came out, I don't know how many people were like me and had no idea that it was actually based on a comic book. <laughs> yeah. I think uh, I saw somebody post who was like, he was quote tweeting somebody who was like, oh my god, Guillermo del Toro has to do a comic book movie. Is like, did you not see Hellboys? Or Blade? He did those. Those are comic books. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think mostly... I guess kind of how I want to wrap this up, and I think Adrian, you already said you want to, you want to see him do a Bioshock movie. Um, what do you want to see Guillermo del Toro do? Like, in your head, like, what do you want to see him bring to life? I was fine with Bioshock. Well, something other than Bioshock. Well, that's not fair. That's not fair. <laughs> <laughs> Out of all the stuff we talked about, like, Bioshock honestly fits probably, especially watching Shape of Water, and especially the way he depicted creatures, as you said, and water creatures. I don't see why that would not fit. Yeah. Uh, he's also actually directing um, a game with Hideo Kojima, the, the man behind the Metal Gear series, and he actually wrote a Metal Gear series comic as well. Um, and for me, I really want to see him direct a Star Wars movie, but I don't want any humans in it. I just want to let GDT loose on the Star Wars universe and give me an entire planet of different aliens. That's I, what I want. I don't, because I believe Star Wars people will ruin him. How will they ruin him? Because they're dicks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, give me a give me a Yellow Toro movie, you know, him following, like, this alien bounty hunter and give him, like, a tragic backstory. I think he would pull it off. And can you so imagine good. all the practical effects? Yeah. All the- think about, like, all the world building he would do without having to do multiple movies like all these other directors have to do when it comes to, like, Star Wars. Like, he would just make the movie and it would just fill in so much background stuff that yeah i think give I think him an anthology it, one honest. of the anthologies yeah give him one of the anthology movies so people are like won't be like oh uh, give him like the boba fett anthology movie and let him loose in like the world of scum and villainy oh he'd do it so well yeah i i think i would honestly just watch him do anything it, i mean i kind of feel like i didn't talk about a lot of but why there was but i think Guillermo, uh, to wrap things up, to me, Guillermo del Toro matters because he does something with horror that I can't think of another director doing. He not only gives you big visual sets and chilling monsters, but he also immerses you to the point that you don't even think about being scared and you just ride on that roller coaster with your protagonist and learn about the world, like Adrian said. Like, the fact that Adrian can sit down and watch one of his movies, which he situates as horror, and he he transcends that genre, I guess. That's why he matters, and that's why he's been able to make such an impact on the filmmaking world, and I can guarantee that 50 years from now we will still be watching his movies and we will still be talking about them and we will still be going back to these originals like Kronos and Devil's Backbone and Pans and even the Hellboys. Like, we will still have that there. We will not be watching Pacific Rim. Pacific Rim is great. That is my hill. Hey, it looks pretty good. and uh, Boyega looks pretty good in it. Well, that's only a <laughs> I produced movie. I, I, can't, I, can't look, I can't be mad at that. Um, yeah, if Shape of Water doesn't win some awards and if Guillermo doesn't get some, you know, some Oscar wins finally after this, something is completely wrong yeah. with the world. And I also think, too, the he also has a huge, like, he believes in his work so much that he doesn't care what you think about it. And so that lets him do things that nobody else would do. Like, who centers their entire movie that already has weird fishmen? on a mute actress or she, she's not actually mute in real life but like a mute character a mute protagonist who can't who very much the same way as the creature cannot give you extra information like that's so much confidence was with basically as you said a mute uh character and a fish humanoid who couldn't talk the and it told such characters. a beautiful story in the very last poem in that movie is very well done. Yes. 
yeah, go see it if you haven't seen it. It's totally, totally worth watching in theaters, I think. Yeah, it is. It definitely is. Um, so, yeah, so what are y'all's final thoughts? I've given mine. You could literally just play the last poem scene from Shape of Water and we could call it great. You could play just the trailer and I think you play the trailer to GD to that movie and you encapsulate everything that is GDT, I think. Yeah. Like, because the trailer is so beautifully done that you know the kind of movie you're gonna get going into it and you still wanna go watch it. Like you know you're gonna go watch a movie about a love story about a chick and a fish who's deaf or like who's mute like, and you're still going to watch it because you know that it's going to be good because it is Guillermo. Like I said, so. you said he put 25 years of work in this movie and you can I know we've been talking about a lot on this compared to some of his other works and it obviously is the most recent but you can tell that this was 25 years worth of work yeah. into this movie. Yeah. It really reads like it. It's his heart. Like, I really feel like that is him just kind of, like, putting his heart bare for everybody. Which is, his love with the with the creature from the Black Lagoon is why he made it. He wanted to give him a happy ending. Which I'm like, aww. Um, but yeah, so I guess that's how we'll end it. Um, just also one of the worst creatures I like out of those original ones. Yeah, he was fascinated by it. <laughs> Uh, which he actually, like, when he talks about it, he's like, I understand that this isn't the most appealing creature out of all of them, but it's my favorite. Like, he talks about it all the time. It's a dude in a fish suit, but this is his favorite one. So um, I guess just to say to... Yeah, it's so it's so right, right? Like, uh, I don't know how early you guys got to the theater, but just watching, like, the history of, like, the swamp, you know, fish monster and how much it's been done and, like, just how, like, cheesy oh, it is. Oh, it's horrible. Yeah. And... <laughs> <laughs> and he has the best version of it. it. It's I can definitely see like why I don't see why he loved it, but I'm glad I'm glad he did. I'm glad he picked that to bring us, you know, Abe Sapien and you know, Shape of Water. Yeah, and he also says that he just he just when he was watching it, he just didn't understand why people were running away from him because he thought he was beautiful. <laughs> um. Yeah. Oh, which actually, fun fact: of Shape of Water, um, and it's the scene is in the trailer. Um, and it opens up with it, so it's not a spoiler. But the scene where it's her dream under underwater and, like, everything's floating. Um, the water was added in post, uh, but he actually suspended all of that furniture from the ceiling with wires. And practically Man, I was that wondering set. that. Yeah, that was I was wondering that since the trailer. Yeah. Like, like, how did he pull this scene off? Yeah, that's what he did. He set up the soundstage. He, he strategically placed every single piece of furniture... And then they added the water in post. You could have walked out after that movie and it would have been fine. Yeah. Or that little that intro part. Yeah. Go watch the damn movie. It was gorgeous. <laughs> As always, you can find our podcast at But Why Though PC on Instagram and Twitter. And you can find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash But Why Though PC. If you have any fan But Why Those for why Guillermo del Toro matters to you, come and tell us. Let us know. And we'll put them up on our brand new website, butwhythopodcast.com. We did get Yeah. So we do have one fan, fan But Why Though this time. And it actually, we have two. Um, one is from at Maite Panda, and she is a host of the Cabronas uh, y Chingonas podcast, which is awesome. Go listen to them. And hers is very simple. He's a chubby Mexican with dreams, just like me. And I love that fan, but why though? Because I think of myself. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the second one is from at Ursatz Ash. She is now a writer for us for our website but why though podcast.com so go over and check out her stuff there is more coming and her fan but why though is he introduced me to new aspects of visual filmmaking that i never seen before so if you sitting in your car sitting at work listening to this episode have some feelings about Guillermo del Toro send them to us our Twitter is at ButWhyThoughPC. Our Facebook is Facebook.com slash ButWhyThoughPC. Or go ahead and email us, info at ButWhyThoughPodcast.com, and we will put it up on our website in the Fan but Why Those section. You can find me at OhMyMythRandier on Instagram and Twitter. Adrian? Yeah, you can find me and my whopping 300 followers 
on Twitter at SuperReese93, S-U-P-E-R-R-U-I-Z 93. Matt. And you can also find me on Twitter at datm18, D-A-T-T-M-1-8. And for those of you that have been following me, you know I've been fascinated with this organ gas thing. For all our organ listeners, let me know why you guys cannot pump gas. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, and I'll go out by putting in the audio from the Shape of Water trailer. If I told you about her, the princess without voice, what would I say? Clean that lab, you get out. This may very well be the most sensitive asset ever to be housed in this facility. You may think that thing looks human, stands on two legs, right? But we're created in the Lord's image. You don't think that's what the Lord looks like, do you? This creature is intelligent, capable of language, of understanding emotions. looks at me, he does not know how I am incomplete. He sees me as I am. J'avoue, j'en ai bavé pas vous, mon amour. Avant d'avoir eu vent de vous. The natives in the Amazon worshipped it like a god. Get him out. What are you talking about? No. We need to take it apart, learn how it works. I don't want an intricate, beautiful thing destroyed. We can do nothing. I'm sorry. Don't do this, Elasa. What is she saying? Don't do this. Oh, God, it's not even human. If I told you about her, What would I say? I wonder.